The truth shall set you free. Transparency is hard, but it works. There will never be a shortage of justifications for why you believe hiding the truth is the right path. You're worried about hurting someone's feelings. You're afraid if your customers find out about a problem, they'll leave your service forever. You're convinced that you're actually protecting your executive team from stress by redacting details of your investor meetings. You believe the competition probably has engineers some sign of how you've built your amazing technology so they can instantly replicate it and launch before you have the chance. So you keep secrets. You distort the truth. You tell a few lies. And worse, you think you can get away with it. Later, when reality comes crashing down, as it always does, you lose the faith of your team or your audience, your investors, or your customers. But you justify it by telling yourself, if things had only gone another way, no one would have even found out, and everything would have been fine. Every founder, every investor, and indeed every employee I've ever talked to in the startup world has stories about the secrets that eventually got out, costing trust, harming relationships, and often affecting revenue and growth, too. Transparency is making a choice to reveal even the most uncomfortable truths with relentless candor. Transparency isn't the same as honesty. Honesty is saying only true things. Many founders and startup teams are honest in that they don't directly lie. But transparency requires digging deep to find and expose what others would normally leave unsaid and refusing to take the easy, quiet road. It's tackling the conversations that make your stomach turn and your voice get caught in your throat. If there's an underperforming person on your team, it's easy to ignore him for a while and hope his manager either helps him improve or fires him. If necessary, coach him or work to find mentorship, coaching, classes, whatever it takes to give him the tools to get better if he has the desire. It could still end up that you or his manager may have to fire him ultimately. That's the thing with transparency. Sometimes the outcome is the same, but how you got there and the downside risk is remarkably different. Transparency's harder at first, and it feels especially painful when it reveals your mistakes or challenges the image you've crafted for your team or customers. Yet, it's immensely powerful, and it has an almost unbelievably positive impact on everyone around you. It may feel like telling your team is admitting weakness and defeat, but in fact, you'll build camaraderie, support, and a powerful incentive to do remarkable work. I've been blown away, time and again, by the ability that bad news has to catalyze great effort and remarkable results. But I can't do that. My team will freak out. There are good reasons to go private. This can be to avoid shaming an employee openly for a mistake, or to enable discussion about private, personal, or professional issues, among others. But people change their behavior for the better when they assume their peers, their reports, and their leadership will get to see, hear the full story. Transparency can't just be a tactic, though. It has to be a core value that's consistently followed. If you openly share some things but hide others, credibility will suffer. Your team will always wonder what you're not sharing. Your customers, your investors, whomever you interact with will be trained not to trust you. A reputation for caginess lasts a long time and follows you across companies and geographies. Why you should not hate on services. The experts in the startup world will tell you that services and consulting are a waste of time. There are two traits fundamental to an effective product-focused business. The first is reach, i.e., the ability to influence a broad audience. The second is scalability, i.e., an aptitude for growing revenue far more quickly than costs. Traditionally, consulting businesses have little of either. Consultants don't need wide brand awareness or a broad audience. 
They require only a small group of highly targeted individuals and organizations to be aware of their existence and services. Word of mouth is often enough to fill the pipeline for consulting businesses. In a product-based business, though, a much broader audience is typically required, and there's a vastly greater need for brand awareness and market penetration. Word of mouth alone can power an exclusive list of enterprise-only product companies, but even then, the competitive landscape dictates a degree of coverage and scaled-up marketing that's seldom found in the consulting world. Start with a product that solves consumer problems. Your services will expose you to real-life problems facing consumers and organizations. The solutions you have in the form of applied knowledge is what people are willing to pay for. Your experience can inform a product's design, content, marketing, amplification, and even the early parts of audience building. It exposed you to hundreds of scenarios and problems, many of them overlapping, which will give you the knowledge of how to solve them. Before you ever designed a tool, identify what issues you want to solve, and more importantly, you should know that there were many others like you trying to solve those same problems. Build a scalable marketing practice that attracts your product's audience. Many consulting businesses are driven by small-scale marketing and word of mouth. If you can leverage marketing channels for your consultancy with an eye to your product business in the long term, you will be vastly ahead of the game. The key is to find channels of attraction with enough overlap to accommodate both the audience you need now services clients and the ones you need to reach in the future product buyers. Use the services revenue to fund the product's creation and testing. Don't let obsessions with your new idea overtake your focus on the consulting business success. It can be tempting to devote the majority of your time and the business resources to product development, especially when you're excited about what you're creating and you better be damned excited, because that passion will be needed to get through the ugly parts of product scaling. But if you cut short your consulting revenue, or fail to fill your pipeline with new clients, or let your work quality suffer, your adventure could be over before it begins. Founders who've attempted this shift reported that three big things are almost always holding back a successful transition, comfort with the existing model, and reliance on services income to survive. The undistracted time needed to build a great product. The difficulty of finding enough of the right customers for that product. It's rare that your services clients are the perfect match for your product because fundamentally, they need services, not a product, that's why they're your customers. If you internalize these challenges ahead of time, you can form testable theories of how to overcome them. If you recognize the odds, the sacrifices, and the upsides of both models, you can wisely choose between them. Passion and commitment is an asset. When your startup is growing, the tasks and competencies change. If you didn't have a pre-existing notion of what startup entrepreneurship looks like, it might seem logical to imagine a series of events. Something like this, the entrepreneur graduates college, works for a year or two in a field that provides broad exposure to many different types of businesses, perhaps consulting, gets an MBA, does a thorough analysis of potential opportunities in a variety of fields, identifies the one with the least competition and highest demand potential, creates product, marketing, and scaling plans, fundraises, and then starts a company. It sounds reasonable, right? But we know from data, and from experience, that most entrepreneurs, and an overwhelming majority of the most successful entrepreneurs, don't start out with anything close to this level of deliberate evaluation. Instead, we dive headfirst into the thing we're passionate about, without even considering the alternatives, the market risks, the competitive landscape, the long-term demand curves and macroeconomic forces that might indicate it's a terrible time to start a new business. Entrepreneurs start out doing what they love. 
Not because it makes sense, or because it's a great market, but because they cannot imagine themselves doing anything else. On the one hand, that passion and commitment is an asset. It can help early-stage companies push through the ugly barriers that make it so difficult to find a business model. On the other, once there's a small working operation, the leadership needs to refocus on all the tasks a growing organization demands. If you're ready to accept this limitation in the work you'll get to do and to put shepherding your vision ahead of doing what you love, you have a new set of challenges ahead. Great startups aren't built by people who never gain competence beyond their particular field, instead by people with proficiency in financial strategy, task planning, human resources, conflict resolution, office management, fundraising, customer support, payment collections, business intelligence, and dozens of other functions founders rarely consider in the early stages. You'll get to learn each of these through a process the startup world affectionately calls muddling through, or the more accurate description, wading into a painful slog of failure, learning, and repetition. In essence, you'll realize, frustratingly late, a particular pain point that's holding your team back from effectively or efficiently accomplishing a goal. Attempt a variety of techniques to overcome that pain point. Determine what most of the things you've tried have failed. Experience the elation of breaking through, at least partially, and finding some success. Uncover new frustrating side effects and unintended consequences of your solutions. Realize that the solutions are worse than the problem and determine a way to simply avoid or ignore the pain point, possibly by refocusing your strategy, so you simply don't have to deal with it. Many founders believe they can delegate key business functions to other people on their team, and often they should. But your first hires in any of these roles will need guidance, support, input, and occasionally you'll need to dig into the details yourself. You might simply need to know more about the issues before you can determine whether the problem lies with your people, your management, your processes, or something else. This is the work entrepreneurs do in growing organizations, digging into problems, entangling conflict, freeing people from the mindsets or structures that hold them back, crafting, and refining, over and over, the pillars and policies of how the company functions. The hours you spend on the business will shift from doing what you love to enabling a vision and navigating whatever impediments arise along the way. Expect to do work you don't like to allow what you do to flourish. If you don't, the disappointment and frustration can kill your motivation. Embrace that reality, though, and you'll come to see the CEO role as one of enabler and problem solver. For those who love helping others get unblocked and watching progress scale far beyond what they could achieve alone, this can be an immensely rewarding job. Determinants of strength and weaknesses. This should come as no surprise. Pivots don't happen on a whim. You change your business model, your product, your market, or your entire idea only if things are going very poorly. It's nasty, ugly, hard, grueling work building these things in the first place, and if you've achieved any progress whatsoever, you're likely to stick with it, learn, and improve. Given this reality, it might pay to be less cavalier and more analytical in your approach to choosing an industry, an idea, a product, and a target customer. It may also pay to select a field others to ignore because it's perceived as unsexy, sketchy, or uninteresting by some other vanity-centric logic. Picking a good market, compelling communication medium, and a business model will inadvertently cover up a tremendous number of mistakes and a steep learning curve. Don't believe execution isn't everything. You can be the tortoise rather than the hare, and by picking the right race and the right route, win over far more talented teams because you're continually improving in a less crowded space no one else has chosen.
Suggestions in analyzing competitors are, it makes your life vastly easier to chase after smaller markets where you have unique knowledge and passion, and where ongoing, smaller amounts of innovation can separate you from the pack. Great ideas and products are often born from time enough to iterate and evolve into something remarkable, humility enough to see what's wrong and admit failure so you can move forward, and survival a profitable services business can be a godsend here. Your business will be even more likely to succeed in the market you target is served by incumbent solutions that are some combination of hated by their customers, unwilling or unable to evolve with their customers' needs, protected by competitive advantages you can unravel or a non-mature market. Keyword research uncovers what words and phrases people are searching Google for and in what quantities, and this will almost always uncover untapped opportunity. Move beyond the solution keywords, and look for searches that indicate problems. The number of monthly searches for city name plus taxi helped Uber figure out which cities to launch in. There's a crucial prerequisite needed to double down on your strengths or combat your weaknesses as a founder, team, and business, self-knowledge. Tragically, most of us have a poor understanding of our own strengths and weaknesses. It is probably no big surprise to hear that a company inherits its founder's attributes, whether they are good or bad. Install a misogynist as CEO, and you'll find that the company has misogynistic practices. Back a founder with self-worth issues and they'll often overcompensate through political power plays and a lack of sharing credit. Study enough startups, and you'll see this pattern over and over. This pattern plays across companies of all sizes, industries, and makeups. Founders and CEOs determine not just the personality and culture, but the fundamental strengths and weaknesses that govern an organization's trajectory for years or even decades. Hiring or finding a skilled co-founder is not the only way to bolster a weakness. If you have great confidence or considerable fear that an area of weakness could be your company's downfall, you can invest in that attribute. But first, you have to know it exists. That process is eminently achievable, but few entrepreneurs have the self-awareness or take the time to diagnose. A founder's strengths and passions will often become the organization's strengths. Smart organizations should use this to their advantage by crafting a business model, a team structure, a product, and sales, marketing channels that lean on these strengths and minimize, but don't ignore, the weaknesses. Tragically, most of us have a poor understanding of our own strengths and weaknesses. Make a list of the previous successes and failures you've had in your career, and of the elements of running a business with which you're familiar and comfortable. Chances are high that your weaknesses will be the items not on that list. Keep a running record of successes and failures. When problems arise personally step in to provide the remedy, does the issue generally get fixed, or does your position get stronger? If the answers are consistently, yes, you've found strength. If it's, no, you've got a weakness. List functional areas of the business ignore how you're actually subdividing the team's people and record which teams or roles have high turnover versus strong retention, which has an easy time recruiting versus a tough slog getting qualified applicants. These recruiting and retention numbers have a strong correlation with strengths and weaknesses. If you haven't yet started your business or are in the early stages, use your strategic plans to identify hits and misses. Ask your team, investors, customers, past managers and co-workers, friends, and loved ones questions. If one person mentions an attribute of yours as a virtue or a failing, consider it. If multiple people mention the same one, you've got a more concrete answer. And remember, the more receptive you are, the more honest people will be. Don't raise money for the wrong reasons or from the wrong people. 
Founders usually think that when investors put money into their company, there's alignment in the outcome. You're on the same team. Everyone's cheering for the company's success, and everyone's willing to put in hard work to make that happen. There is a need to take a little reality hammer and smash your founder's delusion. Look, investors aren't jerks, they aren't lying when they loudly proclaim that they're 100% behind you and want to do everything possible to help. It's true in the beginning, but over time, their incentives change according to your performance versus the rest of their investment portfolio. That's when misalignment occurs, and if you and your company, especially your leadership team, aren't prepared for it, reality can hit hard. Institutional investors and angel investors alike face long odds with any individual company. That's why they place a lot of bets. A small number of companies will make them money, and the rest will lose money, break even, or deliver returns too small to beat the market. Realistically, the distribution for the average venture fund looks like this. Out of 10 investments, 5 will fail. Another 3 will return an insignificant amount. The final 2 will combine to form the bulk of any gains. For some entrepreneurs, fundraising is part of the fun of building a company. They relish the exposure to critical feedback, the social aspects of those hard-to-get introductions, the prestige of being in meetings with seven or eight-figure outcomes, and the congratulatory press and celebratory experience of finally closing the deal. But regardless of your predilection or aversion to fundraising, the process is incredibly tough, with dismal odds. When you sign up with an investor, you'll agree to a lot of terms and clauses that can be a peculiar combination of seemingly unimportant and concerningly scary. The author offers the following piece of advice. First, do not attempt to raise money or talk to potential investors without transparency. Second, get your investors to explain each piece of the term sheet to you, then get your attorney and a savvy entrepreneur friend to explain the same pieces to you. If the stories don't align, then be careful. Lastly, don't sign anything with anyone you don't trust 100% and don't believe have your best interests at heart and not just their portfolio's returns. One final tip, if possible, build your expertise before building your network, and build your network before building your company. Each one leads elegantly into the next. If you have deep experience and skills in a particular aspect of startup building or technology that makes an hour on the phone with you deeply valuable and valued by entrepreneurs and startup teams, you've got a clear, compelling path to build a powerful network. Assist a handful of people and companies with their issues as a consultant, a member of the team, or simply an outsider who loves to help others, and you'll have a built-in network to assist in your fundraising process. That network is what makes the fundraising process from the near impossibility to potentially achievable. How to get customers. Great companies are almost universally fed by a powerful, ongoing set of marketing processes that earn attention from the right audiences and bring them to the company's physical or virtual doorstep. When thinking about how to build a marketing process that's going to work for the long term, that can scale without friction, that can build on itself even as your business grows, consider the flywheel analogy. Each one will be different, and yours should be substantially unique from your competitors, built to take advantage of your particular skills, and targeted to your specific audience. If you've got a great idea for a landing page or a referral program or a way to reach the right customers via a social network in a scalable manner, just make sure you know how to test, track, and apply it inside the funnel you're building. Growth hacks alone can't solve all your marketing problems, but the right ones may add immense value to an already humming marketing flywheel. This metaphor refers to a piece of machinery from the Industrial Revolution that stored up rotational energy from inconsistent sources in the form of inertia. 
This could then be used to power any number of systems that require a consistent output of that energy. The flywheel should be powered by content that audiences in CO find through a variety of channels, search engines, social media, word of mouth, conferences, and events, email subscriptions, referring links on other websites, etc. The process of creating that content, amplifying it through various channels, reaching new audiences via that amplification, and bringing people back to your website is powerful systems that will drive millions of visitors and thousands of new software free trials each month. But like a flywheel, it will take an immense amount of energy to get started, and only after it is rotating smoothly, growing its inertia, did its function in this friction-like fashion. The Startup Cheat Code A great way to start up is to start out by solving your own problems. You'll be the target audience, and you'll know what's important and what's not. That gives you a great head start on delivering a breakout product. Investors, media, employees, and fellow entrepreneurs push us to go big or go home. Entrepreneurship culture broadly and the technology world, in particular, glorify founders who stayed independent, turned down the big acquisition offers, and built world-changing companies as a result. The fundamental trade-off of startup finances is, earlier stage usually means lower salary, fewer benefits, more risk, but the more potential reward if things go amazingly well. The later stage usually means competitive salaries and benefits, less risk, but only a small reward even in exceptional outcomes. Money isn't everything, ego, pride, reputation, and notoriety are also big players in how startup founders and employees think about their companies and any eventual exit. Startup culture creates a notable distinction between aspiring entrepreneur and successful entrepreneur. In the first category, people are still trying to accomplish their end goal, and in the second, they've achieved it at least once. Those goals could be any number of things. It could be building a business that's profitable and enables you to live the way you want, it could be the creation of a new trend, or, most commonly in the tech startup world, it could be delivering on the promised return for your investors. Startups are punishingly hard slogs for everyone involved, ranging from founders, employees, spouses, and families, and often customers and investors, too. The model, most institutional investors, have doesn't work well with small exits. Craft your own path and encourage other founders to do the same. Just as a great startup rejects the status quo in its market to build something better, so, too, should you put aside any indoctrinated notion that an IPO or a billion-dollar sale should be pursued at the cost of any smaller outcome. The odds are against you, your team, your investors, and your ego. Be realistic about your chances, and do what feels right to you and your team. Your investors will, I promise, be just fine. If management is the only way up, we're all effed. The theory behind it is that each employee is judged for their next promotion based on their performance at the current one, rather than their potential aptitude for the new work required in that higher-up role. Hence, people advance at an organization until they are no longer competent in their positions, and the company is left with more and more incompetence at senior levels. This ugly scenario will inevitably occur if employees stop being promoted only when they can no longer perform effectively. Knowing this theory is one thing. Finding a way to combat it, another. Here's the challenge in a nutshell, say you want to grow your product design team. For the past two and a half years, you've had a capable product designer who's built great stuff and earned the trust and respect of the people around them. But, the designer's proven value comes from the work they do, understanding customers, crafting user experiences that serve those audiences and managing communication with the engineers who build the product, the marketers who promote it, and the end customers who use it. 
This designer is clearly competent but doesn't have management experience and hasn't displayed the skills or passion for the demands of management. Underlying this problem is a belief that anyone can be a people manager, and that unlike any other specialized role e.g., accounting, marketing, engineering, design, or sales, all it takes is the will to manage and an understanding of the problem space. One of the hardest, most frustrating conversations with team members is the one about what managers do versus what individual contributors ICs do. Many ICs believe that management is just telling people what to do and making sure they do it. They assume that only managers who've previously done the work themselves can be effective. They make an inherent assumption, often based on real, personal experiences, that the best managers are the people who used to be the best ICs, thus proving their worthiness as leaders. A mediocre engineer will make for a poor engineering manager. A great customer service manager could never be an effective engineering manager. These myths are so easy to believe and so tied up in standard business protocols that unraveling them is like pulling teeth every time. Observing great people doing awful work and seeing previously poor performers excel to say that the line between being great at work yourself and being a great manager of the people doing that work is largely disconnected. The author concedes that much of the time, great people managers were good at, or at least performed, the jobs of their reports at one time or another. But that, my friend, is a correlation, not causation. Just because most managers apply for and are promoted into their role by virtue of their IC work in that same arena does not mean that IC work is necessarily connected to effective management. Characteristics or behaviors consistent across good managers are, a good coach. Empowers the team and does not micromanage. Expresses interest, concern for team members' success and well-being. Is productive and results-oriented. Is a good communicator. Helps with career development. Has a clear vision, strategy for the team. Has important technical skills that help him, her advise the team. In some cases, the manager did not possess technical skills, therefore, making the team members upgrade one another's skills, mentored one another, and more often, took greater responsibility for the output of the work. Conversely, if the managers possess their own strong technical skills, the work gets done their way, and the improvement in skills tends to be clustered around the manager's specific strengths. Reliance on these highly skilled managers might result in less individual effort given by the team's members to explore and expand on their own. This isn't always the case sometimes a great IC will make for a great people manager who encourages broader education from the team and who encourages dissent on how to do things rather than enforcing his own tried and true methods. Research suggests that people management and IC work are two fundamentally different things whose overlap is neither obvious nor consistent. Conclusion do not get caught up with the hype of superstar startups. Scaling your business will require hard work. To succeed, you need to get ready for it for the long haul. There is no shortcut to fame and fortune. To enjoy enduring success, imbibe honesty and transparency. Identify your strengths and weaknesses. Carefully consider your funding options. Do not collect money from the wrong people. Try this. Carefully consider your funding options. Venture capital is not the only way to fund your startup. The disadvantages far outweigh the advantages, take your time, do not jump at the first one that comes your way. Consider the following funding options crowdfunding, angel investment, micro VC to bootstrap, and many more. Consider your options and pick one.